electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Fast Money starts right now. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Dan Nathan. Coming up on Fast, Uber making a giant U-turn in the after hours with the company's CEO just said on the call that's got the stock moving higher. Plus, break out your rally caps when top technician says a major low is in the market, how he's betting on a breakout. And later, the one man who just sent a giant shockwave through the entire cryptocurrency market, the big bet on Bitcoin that's got everyone talking tonight. But first... We begin with a trip back to the future for the markets. Let's take a look at this one-year chart of the S&P 500 flagged by our own Dan Nathan. A year ago today, it was trading just under 2,900. Today, basically back to that exact level. So let's fire up that flux capacitor and set the coordinates to one year ago today to see what life looked like. And wow, the world has changed. This time last year, the S&P 500 was trading at 17 times forward P.E. The 10-year note was yielding around 2.5%. Unemployment was just over 3.5%. And GDP was sitting around 2%. Now, flash forward to today, the S&P 500 is now trading around 20 times forward P.E. The 10-year yield, 0.64%. Unemployment is projected to hit 16%. And GDP is negative for the first time in over a decade. The world has been turned upside down. But the market doesn't seem to care. So if you're an investor, should you make like a tree and get out of here? Guy, I'm told that that is a, a, a funny line from the movie. <laughs> I, you've never seen the movie? so I, I saw it. The movie was released, I think, in the summer of 85. <laughs> I think I turned 50 that year, and it was a fantastic movie. It's interesting, you know, this dawned on me as I listened to your intro. The economy is George McFly. The stock market is Biff Tannen, right? Bully, just making himself, going to the top. But think about what happened at the end. So that's why I would caution folks, you know, this chasm between the two I don't think can last much longer. With that said, I mean, you just have to be extraordinarily impressed by the resiliency. I thought Monday was an extraordinary day. And today, you know, the, the late sell-off notwithstanding was still very impressive. Dan Nathan, you flagged this chart for a reason. So what's your thesis? Yeah, I, I mean, listen, it's pretty clear to me, and I've been pretty consistent on this. Just first things first, you know, the market has not really made up any ground over the last month or so. It really has been grinding between 28 and 2,900 in the S&P 500. Um, obviously, the news has been really bad on the economic front. But I'll just tell you this. I mean, like, again, if you're looking at the stock market, the thing that has been most uh, most seriously propped up by the Fed action over the last couple months, you're, you're just looking through the wrong lens as it relates to the health crisis and the financial crisis and the economic crisis. And all you had to do was listen to Warren Buffett over the weekend and say he's selling things that he owns. He's not putting that $137 billion to work that he has waiting for a rainy day. So what is he waiting for? He's friends with the smartest guy on the planet, Bill Gates, who's telling him that there's very likely to be another wave of this virus. So to me, I think you, you wait here. You do not get all in. 
Somebody's phone is ringing, guys. <laughs> Karen, what do you make of the stock market levels no, no, here? No, don't stop. Don't say guy. It's not me. <laughs> oh, it sounded it's like Tim. an old-timey ring, like your there. phone or something. Uh, but, uh, Karen? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty confused by the action. I mean, you know, I, I am not nearly as optimistic as the market seems to be about a V-shaped recovery. There was a lot of conflicting signals today. So we had, you know, guys been flagging that tensions with China on trade are really a risk. And they seem to cool somewhat. So and the market rallied, I think, on that. But you had treasuries very strong. So yields much lower. That's not consistent with a V-shaped recovery. Then you have gold up big. Um, That is, you know, inflationary. So a lot of different things going on. I am... So a day like today, I'm paralyzed. I don't know what to do. I don't find any particular bargains there, and yet I don't want to sell what I own. So I'm just kind of hanging out. The VIX also is sort of in limbo around 30, 31. So I'd like to see it come in and buy some more protection. So like Dan, I'm skeptical that we'll have this V-shaped recovery. However, this Fed action was so extraordinary that, you know, it's, I mean, they're just throwing trillions with a T, which is hard to even believe that we throw those numbers around casually now, trillions of dollars at the problem. So it doesn't make me want to be short the market. Right. And that's, that's something that didn't fit into I'd never be short our, anyway. I'm that, long. Right. That, that's something that didn't fit into our nice two-column chart there when it comes to a year ago versus today, and that is the Fed and its extraordinary actions, including basically a blanket guarantee of virtually every kind of debt out there, Tim, on top of a lot of stimulus coming out of Congress. <laughs> Right. So the, the Fed is the plutonium in the flex capacitor. I mean, they've, they've absolutely taken us uh, to an era where you've had this extraordinary thrust in the market, whether it's to another place in time or whether it's to a place where the market doesn't belong on fundamentals. Um, you also have equity underweights everywhere. You have you have equity shorts in, in, in many places. Um, and so I, I think this has a lot to do with where the market is uh, with rates at zero uh, and the Fed basically making it clear that they will do whether they are doing has been enough for the equity market. We all know that the economy's in, in not great shakes. We all know that, I mean, the earnings after the belt today were largely horrendous, especially with companies that are looking into the second and the third quarters. But um, when you start to get some sense of the bottom is when markets are going to start to rally. So while I, I don't think we have to necessarily charge higher, I think you should take it as a victory that the markets have held on to most of those gains that nobody thought they were going to. Uh, and I think the markets actually behave pretty well despite closing near the lows the last two or three days. Dan. Yeah, well, I'll just say this. I mean, I would say that the equal weight S&P 500 doesn't act well. It's down 20 percent on the year versus the S&P 500 that's down a little less than 11 percent on the year. We know why that is. It's the crowding in the MAGA trade, right? 20 percent of the S&P 500. Just look at the banks. Look at J.P. Morgan, how poorly it closed today, how poorly it trades in general, down 35 percent of the year. The bank stocks and the equal weight S&P 500 are telling you that the economy has not bottomed. You might see the unemployment number reach a top sometime very soon. But what's different this time than, let's say, the past financial crisis was that unemployment topped out 
basically two years after the stock market topped out. If you're telling me that unemployment in this crisis is going to basically top out within a month or two of the S&P 500 bottoming out of this crisis, I just don't believe it. It's not what's going to happen here. So to me, if you really want to focus on how the stock market's doing, look at the banks. They're telling you that this economy is going to be in a deeper and longer recession than most people think. And the equal weight S&P 500 is telling you that the rally is not as broad as most people think it is. All right. Well, our next guest says the opposite of Dan. <laughs> the market bottom is in and he's got the charts to prove it. Let's get to Chris Verona, Strategist Research. Chris, what are you seeing? Well, listen, I think there uh, I think there's some supportive data that would suggest the typical ingredients of a major low have shown up over recent weeks. And we kind of take this uh, in bullet point form one by one. And we say, you know, if we look at March, March was among the most capitulative months we've seen in history. The new low data in March was as bad as anything we've seen in about 100 years. Then you fast forward to April. The quality of the rally in April was remarkable. Uh, we had seven days of really, really strong breath skews, 35% rally in a month, one of the best moves we've seen in history. And when you look at those moves historically, when you get moves of this magnitude over a short period of time, the forward returns from this six and 12 months in the future tend to be exceptional. The tricky part of the call is the forward returns from these big surges over the next one to three months can be pretty random. And it kind of brings us to our third point. We're in that digestation phase. We're in that phase where the market has to consolidate some of these gains. And I think that's likely as we move through May and June. And you know, if we bring up the second chart that we brought along and just look at some levels, I think it's reasonable you could see this market consolidate back to that, let's call it 2550 to 2650 range. That would be about a 12% drawdown uh, from the highs. But there's a lot of support there. And I think one thing we would see, if you saw a market come in here, the apocalyptic thinking that was so prevalent throughout March and April is going to return very quickly. And I would view that as an opportunity. Now, one of the things we've been very impressed by over the last number of weeks in particular, and if you go to the next slide, is the risk-seeking leadership that the markets actually exhibited. I recognize things like banks have been softer, but high beta is outperforming by a very, very wide margin. Conversely, a lot of the defensive groups are off the field. Look at utilities continue to underperform among one of the worst groups uh, over the last week or two. So I see some offensive characteristics, even as the market uh, starts to pause here. I think that's pretty much, I, I, I think that's pretty important. And then lastly, I think underappreciated. You know, it's only three weeks ago we were talking about negative front month crude. Crude has staged a really important rally here. We've seen Brent go from 13 to 33. We've seen the entire crude curve WTI back above $20. I recognize that expiration is still a couple weeks away, but this is a vote of confidence that some demand is being reintroduced into the economy. So I know May and June seasonality is not our friend here. We may need to consolidate. But when you look at the capitulation we saw in March, the quality of the rally we saw in April, I at least think it's worth entertaining the idea that we've put a major low in. So just to underscore this, Chris, uh, you think that we've seen the bottom, but we could still see as part of this long consolidation process, which could take a few months. So basically till the fall, we yeah. could see within that a 12 percent drawdown. Yeah, you know, I think what's interesting in presidential election years, you actually tend to see markets 
um, grind in May and June and tend to put a bottom in sometime around July. I think that's a pretty decent playbook here. You know, there's this expectation of um, being very precise in this business. And I think that's a little bit of a mistake. Uh, I, I don't want to get too cute about the finer point. I think the bigger picture here is you don't get many opportunities uh, with 35, 36, 37% drawdowns in stocks. You had a Russell 2000 down almost 50. And I would kind of reject the idea that this has been a quick event. Russell 2000 peaked in, I think, June of 2018. So there's been segments of the market that have been in a bear market for a long period of time. And I think one of the undertold stories of the last few weeks is the momentum surge we've actually seen from small caps. You've had more small caps make a one-month high over the last week than you've seen in six or seven years. So I actually think under the surface, it's a little bit broader than people would think. All right. Chris, great to see you. Thank you. Chris Verone of Strategus. Tim, can you see what Chris is saying in terms of not being too cute about this when you've got this overall major drawdown in stocks? Well, I think Chris is realistic also that you, you don't necessarily expect, I don't expect markets that, that have to hold 2850 to 2900, but that the consolidation will be not one that's a return to the lows and not one that's, he used the word apocalyptic. Um, I, I certainly, you know, the, the sentiment, but the positioning got so oversold. There's some other things that are happening too. I think the dollar is going to be your friend. The dollar is 3% off of what were almost uh, 18 year highs. And maybe that was a double top around 103 and a half. Uh, I think the Fed is pinning the long end of the curve. Uh, and I do think that rates are going to stay low. I, I think credit is, is, you know, we don't totally know the credit picture. Uh, but I think, if anything, the banks have prepared the market for that. They are prepared for the credit as, as best we can understand with a, an economy. We don't know. But um, I would tend to take Chris view as I think most people know. All right. Uh, we've got some breaking news here on Ford. Phil LeBeau's got the story. Phil. Hey, Melissa, Ford announcing officially what we heard from GM and Fiat Chrysler over the last couple of days. Ford is going to be resuming production at its plants starting on Monday, May 18th. Remember, earlier today, the governor of Michigan basically gave the all clear for manufacturers to once again begin production starting next Monday, the 11th. Well, on the 11th, Ford will begin sort of waking up the system, if you will, starting with its parts depots, getting ready for production at its final assembly plants, which, again, will resume on Monday, May 18th. And by the way, Melissa, like all automakers, this is going to be a gradual resumption of uh, production. It's not like they're going to have all three shifts going immediately at all their plants. Instead of three shifts, it'll be two shifts. At some plants where it's two shifts, it'll go only as one shift, and there's going to be safety protocol uh, measures in place for all of the workers at those plants. But again, Ford resuming production on Monday, May 18th. Melissa? Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau. And of course, resuming production is important in terms of getting the cash flow going, Karen. Ford recently did a debt offering successfully. Um, does this make the, the picture for Ford and the other automakers that much better? It's at least some clarity. It's a little clarity, so that is good. And we got a little clarity, a lot more clarity yesterday from GM. I would much rather be in GM than Ford. They're, they're much better positioned to weather this storm, however long it takes. We don't know how long it's going to take. You know, one of the flip sides of an Uber, which we'll get to, is are people not going to do ride sharing? Or are they going to want to own their own cars? That would be a positive. Hertz, on the other side, uh, you know, has a huge fleet of used cars. That's going to hit the market. Um, so anyway, there's a lot of headwinds and tailwinds, but I'd much rather be in GM than Ford. All right. Coming up. Shares of Uber making a U-turn in the after-hour session with the company CEO just said on the call that's got the stock reversing course. And later, a Bitcoin bombshell. One Wall Street Titan reportedly making a big bet on the cryptocurrency, our own Bitcoin baller. BK will join us with his take when Fast Money returns.
What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on Uber. Shares are soaring after reporting results. They're up almost 9% in this after an 11% gain in the regular session. Let's get to Deidre Bose with the details. Deidre. Hey, Melissa. Shares turned positive as the call kicked off. Here's what CEO Dara Khosrow Shahi said to turn them around. I want to talk about what we're seeing in Arise business today, and I won't sugarcoat it. COVID-19 has had a dramatic impact on rides, with the business down globally around 80% in April. Still, there's some green shoots driving restrained optimism. We've seen week-on-week growth globally for the past three weeks. This week is tracking to be our fourth consecutive week of growth. Last week, we saw 9% trip growth and 12% gross bookings growth globally. Now, he also said that he believes the U.S. is now off the bottom. Still, guys, net losses were pretty breathtaking, $2.9 billion in the quarter. But remember, Uber has been burning through billions of dollars uh, for years. The shock may have worn off. It's the promise of profitability that investors are focused on. And Khosrow Shahi said that profitability remains a strategic priority. And, quote, COVID-19 will impact our timeline by a matter of quarters and not years. We will hear more from him tomorrow morning on Squawk Box. Back to you, Melissa. Deidre, just to be clear, he said profitability by 2021. Isn't that correct? Was that, was that the prior promise as well? He actually moved that up to the end of this year. He didn't say whether or not that remains intact, and they have withdrawn uh, their guidance for the year total. So the best indication we have now is him saying quarters, not years. But that initial target was by the end of this year. Lifts is next year. Okay. Deidre, thank you. Deidre Bosa. Interesting guy to think that you can suspend your guidance but still have a projection for profitability. To me, I'm scratching my head. Especially in, this, in, in the current environment that we find ourselves in, when nobody knows what the world's going to look like, you know, a week from now, let alone, you know, you know, six months from now, let alone a week from now. I, I don't know how to sort of gauge this. Uber added probably, I don't know, $7 billion in market cap today on the back of, as Deirdre just said, a $3 billion. It's, it's, it's remarkable, but that's the market that we find ourselves in. And I think that's why a lot of people, myself included, find themselves scratching their collective heads. You know, we played the game last night. Would you rather? I'll play it for night two once again. I would still rather lift. <laughs> but, I mean, the move today in Uber, both during the day now in the post-market, is, again, to use the word, remarkable. You're forgiven for the self-would you rather. Dan, Nathan, I'll go to you because it looked like in the quarter you Appreciate could actually it. see uh, the, the other businesses really firing, namely Eats, for instance. I mean, it, it's showing its strength in its other ancillary businesses. 
Yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, listen, there, there was clearly um, a dislike for that business and the money losing aspect of it prior to the pandemic. Obviously, it's nice to see them have some other levers to pull um, when their rides business is, is, is floundering. It, it is astounding to me that this stock is up on the year right now when you consider um, that there's going to be some serious behavioral changes, um, how consumers kind of interact with this service going forward. That being said, it's pretty nascent if you think about it in the grand scheme of things. So, um, you know, the ride stuff is going to be around for a while. The eat stuff is going to be around for a while. The thing that we were just told, though, about the profitability, I'm with Guy here. They have a mulligan. Why put it out there? You know, I I think you could kind of keep this thing as kind of opaque as possible in the meantime, but I I just don't know. I mean, I I would not be buying it after the two-day run it had. All right, let's get more reaction to Uber's quarter. Loop Ventures' Gene Munster has been listening in on the company's call. Gene, I'm going to just start off right there. The CFO said profitability in 2021, and yet they pulled guidance for the rest. It doesn't make any sense to to us. Does it make sense to you? Does not. I don't know where that confidence comes from. I think it's... uh, potentially leading investors in a, in a distant direction. And this quarter is not as clean as it looks with the up 10%. I would caution, yes, Uber Eats is on fire. It's now 30% of bookings, up 54%. Uh, that is a good thing. Uh, but Eats, as Dan said, that loses uh, money. And so they're losing money and they're more money than their other business. They burn cash. Mm-hmm. They went from $1.3 billion to $9 billion. Keep in mind that Lyft's cash was flat quarter on quarter. They talked about a billion dollars in cost savings. Now, uh, Lyft yesterday talked about 500 million in cost savings. But when you compare the different sizes of the platform, the fact that Uber is four times bigger, uh, Lyft or Uber would have had to said that they have saved two billion dollars to be comparable to Lyft's 500 million. They lost market share. Uh, uh, rides are down five percent year over year. Uh, the bookings were up 23 uh, percent for Lyft, and so. I think that this is quite perplexing. Not only the comments about the track to profitability, uh, no company has any uh, visibility beyond uh, probably a week at this point. But what I think it really speaks to, this move in the stock, is just investors' appetite for good news. It's just we're uh, so much looking forward to that. And so when he talks about some of the improvements in the uh, previous weeks, I think it gets uh, uh, gets a substantial weighting. So. When I put this together, they've done a good job, but this is still a company that is going to have uh, a lot of moving parts. One last thing just on Eats that your viewers should uh, keep in mind, too. We talked about the fact that this loses money more than a typical business. They have about 20 or 25% share in the U.S. DoorDash is the largest with 40 or 45% share. Uh, We don't talk a lot about DoorDash because it's a private company, but ultimately is that this is a really competitive business. Again, I did this yesterday. I applaud Lyft for not going after something shiny here and trying to get into that business. I think it's a trap. Uh, Tim, you got a question. Hey, Gene, what do you think about 31 million uh, Uber rewards? What do you think about the relationship that they're touting of 46 percent with uh, Fortune 500 companies? Are, are these parts of the foundation of the business, though, that give you more confidence and stickiness in an uncertain environment? It's good, the rewards, the relationships that they have. Uh, Lyft has similar types of uh, relationships. I don't know what the percentage is, but it's it's similar. Um, I think that uh, ultimately there's uh, probably a bigger question at play that uh, is not generally talked about here beyond the rewards and beyond the current numbers and all the noise in the numbers, is that we've talked a lot about one of the key questions is around safety. 
you know, the investors are thinking about the safety aspect of owning your own car versus public transportation and how that's going to impact ride sharing longer term. I see a more fundamental question just around uh, behavior and how we think about transportation in the future. So, for example, if we work more from home, if we travel to the airport less, that was 9% of bookings for Lyft. Mm -hmm. If we have more groceries delivered to our home uh, and don't yeah, use a ride sharing service to get there, to me, that's probably one of the most um, underappreciated questions here. Incredibly difficult to answer, but that question about how has everything that we're gone through with the pandemic accelerated uh, this future? And does this future include people just simply not moving around as much? Gene, great to get your take on this. Thanks so much for your time, Gene Munster Thank of you. Loop Ventures. Karen, I mean, when Gene said Lyft gets 9% of its revenues from trips to the airport, and to take a look at how airlines are doing and the decimation in terms of the flight schedule and, and, and what expectations do we have for even that to return to normal, for people to want to get to the airport, I mean, it, that the ripple effect is just amazing. It is. I mean, that, that's a big number, 9%. I think you're exactly right. How do you have guidance when, you know, the, everything's so obscure? We have no idea how, how well the recovery will go. Um, I guess they have some guidance on their ability to cut costs. But I don't understand. I don't know if it was Gene or you said take a free pass. If you ever you get a quarter for a free pass on guidance, this is it. I don't know why they felt the need to to really give that. Um, it's, it, it is hard to understand how they have confidence in that. Well, they did say, though, quarters, not years. Maybe it's more than four quarters. I don't know. I don't know how many <laughs> quarters they were talking about before they break even. I don't know, but I completely agree with you. I don't understand how that makes sense. All right. Coming up, the one hedge fund titan who just sent a giant shockwave through the cryptocurrency market will tell you who thinks it's the golden age for Bitcoin. And later, firing higher, why options traders are betting this cybersecurity stock is about to light things up. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. One of Wall Street's most successful hedge fund managers sending a giant shockwave across the cryptocurrency market today. Paul Tudor Jones reportedly buying Bitcoin as a hedge against inflation. Jones comparing the cryptocurrency to the gold trade back in the 1970s, calling it the fastest horse in this environment. Let's break this bombshell down with our own Bitcoin baller, Brian Kelly. Um, BK, I know crypto Twitter was just on fire today with this. More so than ever. Crypto Twitter is a, a funny place. But, uh, yeah, I mean, certainly having somebody of Paul Tudor Jones pedigree and caliber come in and kind of put their stamp of approval uh, on this asset class got everybody really excited. When making the comparison to gold back in the 1970s, I mean, if you follow the evolution of gold and, and Guy probably knows this better than than I do, but. At one point in time, you're buying gold and the ETF didn't exist. When the ETF existed, it became much more accessible to a lot of different investors. And it sort of uh, it, it, it democratized it and also took away that sort of bang for your buck when it comes to the movement of gold because there wasn't scarcity involved with it. Can you see the same thing happening with Bitcoin, especially as there's talks about ETFs as this continues to go mainstream? I mean, if this is truly sort of a, a flag being planted in mainstream investment, the next step could, in fact, be, be uh, ETFs. 
I mean, it could be. We, we haven't seen it yet. I think we're a long way away from an ETF based on what the SEC has said. So at this point in time, it's much more of an institutional. Well, actually, retail can get into it fairly easily, but you're buying the spot market. And I think when I when you look back at the gold market in the 70s, that's when gold was no longer pegged, right? So that was kind of the, the first real market, speculative market that you had. And that's a lot like what Bitcoin is right now. You didn't have all the derivatives, you didn't have the options, you didn't have the ETFs that might tamp down that volatility. That's the same case here in Bitcoin. And when you look at Bitcoin, at least when I look at Bitcoin on a risk reward basis, let's say you buy gold on the on the idea that inflation is coming and it doubles, you're gonna be happy. Nobody's gonna be upset at a double in an investment. But if you look at the volatility of Bitcoin, where it's gone and where it could go, a five or 10X in Bitcoin would not be inconceivable in this environment. Brian, big fan of your work. Uh, a lot of people think the the gold Bitcoin uh, is is binary. You have to own one or the other. They both can't work. Do you think in this environment both can do well? Sure, it's the same thesis. It's the idea that you have um, you need a capped security or a capped supply. And so whether it's gold or whether it's Bitcoin, I happen to think Bitcoin has a much higher upside, a better risk to reward. But the thesis is very similar. Um, the only other thing I would say about Bitcoin is that's different than gold. It's a lot more mobile, right? We've seen the issues we've had over the last weeks where gold prices disengaged from futures, spot gold, because they couldn't get gold bars from London to New York to settle. You don't have that issue with Bitcoin. This is Internet money. You just send it right over and settle it. So in that sense, I think Bitcoin has a bigger role to play in this environment than gold does. All right. BK, great to see you. Brian Kelly, our own Bitcoin baller. Uh, Karen, I'm curious, when somebody like a Paul Tudor Jones says that he's buying cryptocurrency, do you think that sort of paves the way for other hedge fund managers in the mainstream to do the same? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it does. It's sort of... Nobody wants to get uh, sort of outed having owned Bitcoin if it completely falls apart. But if you can say, you know, Paul Tudor Jones owned it also, maybe that gives you a little <laughs> bit of cover. I believe, I mean, the, I think that um, Mike Novogratz had said it uh, a few weeks ago. I really believe if this isn't the environment for Bitcoin to work with this kind of just money printing all around the world, then I don't know what is. So we'll see if inflation ever ticks up. I'm optimistic that... Bitcoin will go up as well. Coming up, we've got an earnings triple play. TripAdvisor, Zillow, Roku all moving lower in the after-hour session. We'll break down the action and later the lowdown on the high end, what the CEO of Sotheby's is saying about the health of the wealthy. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva! Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? 
Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. The earnings keep rolling on in. Roku, Zillow, TripAdvisor all moving lower in the after hours. We've got full team coverage standing by to break down all of these names. Let's kick it off with Seema Modi and more on TripAdvisor's quarter. Seema. Well, Melissa, earnings from TripAdvisor confirm just how badly the travel industry is hurting from COVID-19. TripAdvisor estimates daily bookings and revenue across segments and products declined year over year, more than 90 percent during late March, and this trend continuing through April. TripAdvisor CEO Stephen Coffer expressed his concerns Saying, quote, we believe we are currently going through the darkest days. We remain confident that travel will rebound and that demand for our products and services will recover. In the meantime, TripAdvisor is take, taking steps to reduce costs. In addition to laying off 23 percent of its workforce, announcing furloughs of approximately 22 percent of its workforce or 850 employees. Worth noting, nearly every company in the hospitality and travel space in the last three months have announced layoffs or furloughs due to the pandemic, from Marriott to Airbnb to the cruise lines. The question now, when will Americans travel again? Hilton CEO Chris Nassetta today says he's betting on a slow rebound in the third and fourth quarter. Even then, executives say it will happen in waves. First, a pickup in regional travel by car, and then once we have more access to testing and a vaccine, travel by plane. Melissa, back to you. All right, Seema, thank you. Seema Modi with TripAdvisor. Uh, Tim Seymour, that's pretty dire. I mean, as dire as we thought it was be, would be, that was dire. <laughs> Yeah, down 90 percent. Um, it really tells you where they are. And they had actually withdrawn guidance back in March. So the, the, the visibility in this sector is very, very difficult. And, and frankly, um, of the, the major uh, travel online players, I, I think bookings is really the best position, has the best cash position, has the best leadership position. I, I don't think you need to go to TripAdvisor here uh, in this environment where they basically told you uh, they are reeling it in for liquidity. All right, let's get to Zillow now. Diana olick has got the numbers. Diana. Yeah, Melissa, as you recall, the housing market started 2020 very strong. So revenue came in right along expectations at $1.1 billion, But Q2 guidance came in below expectations. And that's why the stock is taking a hit right now. Now, uh, as for the Zillow Offers program, which is its iBuyer program where they buy homes for you and sell them out, uh, they had frozen that program. They had sales ended over 1,700 homes in inventory after shutting down due to COVID-19. And on the conference call, CEO Rich Barton just said they're actively planning to restart, that is, unfreeze the iBuyer program. But they're still looking at safety and, frankly, the health of the local markets. Now, at the end of Q1, the company had $2.6 billion of cash and investments on its balance sheet the highest in the company's history. In the shareholder letter, Barton said, real estate is resilient and people still need to move. 
and dream of moving perhaps even more now. Melissa. Diana, is there an expectation, uh, are you getting the sense from the conference call that there's an expectation that the value of those homes that they're carrying on their balance sheet will at least retain their value? At least retain. We're not going to see the kind of increases that we were seeing earlier on. We were seeing those price increases gain. You know, home prices were very strong coming into 2020. We are not expecting to see any major drops, except perhaps locally in markets that got hit hard, like maybe Las Vegas or Phoenix. So, no, they're not saying that they expect to see the value drop, but we're not expecting to see any gains either. All right. Diana, thank you. Diana Olick on Zillow. Karen Feinerman, we didn't really like Zillow's business model. I used to love Zillow's business model until they got into the home owning business. I think your, your question is a really good one. seems like they're kind of committed to it. Um, it just changes, you know, it goes from an asset light to a, an asset heavy. And I, I mean, I'm optimistic on real estate rebounding, but I don't know why if you have that asset light, great margin business, why you want to get into this. Yeah. Guy? It's had a tremendous run. I mean, and I think the stock closed up 11 12% today. I'm sequestered like Charles Van Duren. There's another movie reference. But it doesn't look like it's down much more than 20, 30 cents in the after hours unless I'm missing something. So it's remarkable given the run it had today. It's not giving a lot back. I think unless I'm missing something, that's a tremendous tell. I think it's the rally's been, again, uh, somewhat ridiculous, but that you mentioned them the other day with the Elon Musk. I mean, maybe Musk, everything he touches seems to turn to gold. Why not Zillow? I mean, he listed two houses on Zillow for sale by owner. Be interesting to see how that uh, how those sales clear. Uh, let's round things out with Roku. The stock is down nearly 10 percent in the after hours. Let's get to Julia Borston with the details. Hi, Julia. Melissa, that's right. Those Roku shares down well over 9%, despite the company reporting faster than expected, faster, higher than expected revenue, that revenue number growing faster than expected. But the stock did plummet on the company saying its advertising business has seen higher than normal cancellations and saying that while its ad business will continue to grow, they had expected to do so at a slower pace. CEO Anthony Wood saying that the pandemic is slowing Roku's internet ad growth, but that the upside of reduced budgets is that Mark are looking to spend efficiently, which highlights the value of Roku's ads. He also says the company is well positioned to take share from linear TV ads. The company also revealing that it's on acceleration of new accounts in April with streaming hours up 80 percent last month. This after adding 2.9 million incremental accounts in the first quarter with streaming hours up 49 percent over last year in the first quarter. Now, Wood also saying that he believes the pandemic is accelerating consumers' shift to streaming. He says he believes that shift will be permanent, but for now, the ad revenue growth is just not what analysts were hoping for. You see shares now down over 10%. Back over to you. All right, Julia, thank you, Julia Borson. Okay, so ad revenues aren't panning out now, Dan. How are they going to be in a month or in two months, do you think? (laughs) Well, this is probably as good as it gets for them for net ads and for streaming hours when you think about it. So, you know, obviously we are seeing an acceleration towards streaming. But the question is, are these guys going to be getting more of that pie going forward? So if the issue in this quarter, we already knew that the net ads were going to be good. They already pre-announced that. If the issue in the quarter was advertising, we knew that was going to be bad across the board. Do they have the sort of platform, is the sort of platform that's going to command a greater piece of that market share of this secular shift? And I'd say no. So listen, the stock had a really difficult setup here. It was up 20% or so in the last week and a half. 
giving some of that back right now. Um, listen, when you look at the volatility in this stock over the last few months, you say to yourself, something's not exactly right here. Um, investors have had a very hard time figuring out where this thing should trade. Um, I suspect it's somewhere in and around here in the near term until they can put up another quarter and show ad growth. All right. Well, you've got some breaking news here on reopening efforts out west. Dom Chu's got the details. Dom. Specifically, Melissa, when it comes to the city of San Francisco, and this is coming from Mayor London Breed out in San Francisco, who tweeted out that they, so uh, as soon as the 18th, they are looking to allow some businesses to resume operations with storefront pickup again on the 18th. The release from the mayor's office goes on to say that the first round of these particular orders with regard to businesses that will be allowed to operate with storefront pickup as soon as May 18th include bookstores, florists, music and record stores, hobby, toy and game stores, home furnishings and home goods, cosmetics, beauty supply, art supply stores, musical instruments and supplies, sewing, needlework and price and I'm sorry, peace goods stores. So this follows up Melissa on earlier this uh, this past couple of hours, Governor Gavin Newsom of California saying that they are looking to start things up for certain businesses starting tomorrow, the 8th. So, again, some of these steps tangibly taking place in California and specifically San Francisco with regard to their phase one, if you will, of reopening operations. Melissa, All back right, over Dom, to you guys. Dom, thank you. Dom Chu with the update there. Coming up, options traders are betting that this stock is lit. That was a clue. So what's the trade? Stick around. We'll tell you next. Plus, Kramer's jumping into the corner office with top execs from Etsy, Newmont, Square, and Norwegian Cruise. Be sure to catch that power lineup coming up top of the hour on Mad Money. Meantime, much more Fast Money into. Welcome back to Fast Money. FireEye topping the tape today, surging more than 10 percent. And options traders are betting the stock will continue to light things up. Let's get to Mike with the action. Hey, Mike. Hi, Melissa. These cybersecurity stocks really are on fire. This one in particular, it traded 50 times as many calls as puts earlier today on five times the average daily call volume. Most of that activity was concentrated in the May 11 and 11 and a half strike calls. Those are the ones that are going to be expiring a week from tomorrow. Buyers of those calls are betting that the stock is going to be higher than 12 bucks by the end of next week. That would represent an increase of another six and a half percent at a minimum from where it is today. That might sound like a lot, but given how much these stocks have moved, it's understandable why people might be using calls after such a strong uptick that they've seen. Yep. Mike, thanks for that. Mike Coe, uh, Guy Dami, it makes sense. You need more cybersecurity if everybody's working from home. Um, and then there, of course, there are the articles about potentially the Chinese hacking and targeting pharmaceutical companies with information uh, on vaccines. Scary stuff there, Melms. And by the way, I'm a huge fan of the Options Action Show on each Friday at 5.30. What I'll say about FireEye, I, these cybersecurity stocks over the last year should have done much better, but I think you've got to stay with it. And I think a name like FireEye is sort of, and I hate using the term, but I will, spring-loaded on the back of what Mike is seeing. So I'd be more inclined to buy FireEye than fade it here. All right, to watch Guy's favorite show, Options Action, be sure to tune in tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up... How about a cup of coffee with Hillary Clinton or a recording session with Sting? It can all be yours if the price is right. We'll talk to the Sotheby's CEO about his latest charity auction. Stay with us. 
Welcome back to Fast Money. Coffee with Hillary Clinton, a recording session with Sting, hanging out with Borat himself. Those are just a few of the items up for sale in Sotheby's COVID relief auction. For more on that, we are joined by Charles Stewart, CEO of Sotheby's. Charles, great to have you with us. And what a great cause. Um, We want to talk about the auction in just a moment. But first, I want to get a sort of temperature check on what you're seeing uh, in your in your customer base. I know, like so many businesses, you've moved a lot of those auctions online. You've had uh, 40 sales since March 1st, netting $70 million. What's your sense of what those sales would have been like had there been no pandemic? I mean, have you seen reductions in price? Have you seen less participation, for instance? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you very much for having me on the show. Um, Indeed, um, the markets in art and luxury, um, I would characterize as surprisingly resilient uh, over the last few months since the quarantine began. Um, And I think that reflects the fact that, first of all, um, you have almost literally a captive audience. Um, You have people who are passionate about these categories and focusing on them. Um, And there are fewer channels, perhaps, in terms of how to pursue and indulge those interests. So we have seen uh, the benefits and effect of that. And you got your numbers exactly right. We've had 40 auctions um, over the last two months in multiple categories, from art to jewelry to watches and wine, uh, among many others. Are you getting a sense of where these customers are? In other words, um, you know, other parts of the world are opening up faster. So perhaps Asia was more active in some of these auctions than the United States. Well, it's a great question. Absolutely. Um, The activity we've seen both from buyers and sellers um, are very global. Um, And in fact, just this week, we've reopened our offices in Milan, uh, in Geneva and other parts of Europe, uh, which is a great sign. Um, Asia has been uh, open for some time at this point. Um, And indeed, we're seeing in this global marketplace, we're seeing bidding uh, coming from all over the place. Um, and certainly Asia has been you know, a strong source of collecting and purchasing for some time now. And this, this period is no exception. Dan, you got a question? Yeah. Hey, Charlie, on the auction, there's some really uh, interesting lots there. I'm thinking about throwing some bids in on the Strokes virtual conversation or Mumford's and Sons. Are there any unusual values in there? And then let me ask you this. What was the impetus for getting this charity auction together and tell us a little bit about this organization that you're supporting. Well, Dan, thank you so much for the question. I agree with you on the Strokes. They're a great band. I love their new album. Um, We're actually uh, auctioning um, 24 virtual experiences that I would characterize as somewhat priceless. We put them on with no reserve um, and it ranges from everything from recording a song with Sting to hanging out with the Strokes or Sasha Baron Cohen, coffee with Hillary Clinton, or a virtual house party uh, at the real Downton Abbey with several of the characters um, in the series. So we're really excited about it. We're doing this, it's 100% charity auction, as you mentioned, on behalf of the International Rescue Committee, which like us is a global organization who for the last 90 years has focused on providing support to displaced people. And they're doing everything from providing COVID relief and preparedness in places like Syria to handing out free meals here in Brooklyn. So we're thrilled to partner with them And if you look at our website, you can bid until uh, tomorrow afternoon. All right. We'll have to check it out. Uh, It it is a great organization. Charlie, thanks so much. And thanks for your time. We do appreciate it. Thanks. Uh, I'm going to go to Guy on. I I think that you and Karen have had some experience with this auction process. (laughs) Yeah. Hopefully you have the footage. But years ago, it's got to be 2009. Finnerman and I went to Christie's, I think, and we... We had a great shoot. We bid on a Carl Icahn original, if, if memory serves. And obviously, 
Karen had the wherewithal to outbid me and she won, but it was quite the experience. I like that you guys wore black. Is that, the, is that what you do at these fancy schmancy auctions, Karen? You wear black tie? Uh, I get if you go, I usually go over the bit over the phone, but, uh, you know, what the hell? It was fun to do that with Guy. Um, it was a portrait of Carl, not by Carl. Right, right, right. No, yeah. I don't know that we, makes any difference. We saw it. We, we saw it. Okay. <laughs> um, actually, we got some breaking news oh, here. Oh, God. I'm glad I can't see it. <laughs> um, breaking news here on Disney. Julie Borson's got the details. Julia. This is the first U.S. Disney property to begin reopening on May 20th. Disney Springs, which is in Florida. This is sort of like the outdoor shopping mall entertainment area that is adjacent to the Orlando parks. It will reopen on May 20th. So no dates for reopening the theme parks. But the company has announced that on May 20th, it will reopen that Disney Springs outdoor shopping area, sort of like an outdoor shopping mall adjacent to the parks. See, Disney shares up one and a half percent. Guys, back over to you. All right, Julia. Thank you, Julia Borston. Up next, final trade. Time for the final trade, Karen. Yeah, you wonder where all is this debt going to lead us? Inflation. I want to be short the TLT. Dan Nathan. Yeah, just with Uber, just you, you remember, this company just laid off 14% of, of their workforce, and you're cheering it up here. Um, to me, it doesn't make a lot of sense to be a seller of Uber. Tim Seymour. People are definitely smoking more if they smoke. Uh, also, a decent balance sheet at Altria. M.O. is the ticker. Guy Adami. Yeah, don't smoke. Just say no, number one. Number two, I'm with Mike Coco. Beware on this fire eye thing, Melms. All right. Thanks for watching Fast Money. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Mad Money with Jim Cramer and our all-star lineup starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.